Hey everyone, this is Caleb here from In the Mood for Real History. Now before you get started with this episode, if you haven't heard, I want to tell you about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast, so let me explain it to you. First off, being on a teacher's salary, I love that it is free. There's also creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. So make sure to download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Regina King for Cadillac Escalade. When people ask, Regina, do you like to compete? I say, bring it on. Those are the moments that drive you to achieve more. And when you win, you keep reaching higher. To me, that's what the Cadillac Escalade represents. It's always evolving in technology, in design, everything. Because success isn't the end. It's just the first step to what comes next. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. Hello and streaming to you live from one of the few places in Alabama with any common sense. This is In the Mood to Learn Real History, where I'm on a mission to make history real again. So with today's society filled with fake news and all out lies in our history books, every week this show is going to take an episode-by-episode look into the obscure and the major events in history, but from a people's perspective. So instead of hearing the same old stories in your history books that you most likely slept through, we're going to look at these events from a perspective of normal, everyday people and not the glorified leaders. So we want to see how normal, everyday people truly shaped our society. So come on with me. I'm your host, Caleb Mood. So I want to start out by saying how incredibly thankful I am for your support. So if you enjoy this episode or want to let me know how I'm doing, feel free to like this episode and subscribe right below this to my channel. I always appreciate any comments or feedback. So last week, we introduced our new series on democratic socialism. We began by tracing the history of socialism all throughout the United States, from the Gilded Age reforms that brought us workers' rights and safer foods to the New Deal programs of the FDR's uh, presidency. We concluded last week by discussing the civil rights era up to the resurgence of democratic socialism during Bernie Sanders' 2016 and now 2020 campaign. So today we're going to touch on the original sin of the United States, racism. In this episode, I'm going to explain how a third reconstruction is needed to remedy our failure to address the sins of our past that have allowed racism to shape our society and public policy today. Some people will hear this and be like, thank the Lord we're finally having this discussion. Other people will hear it and automatically get angered and triggered and want to close off. I'll let you decide which side is which. But the only thing I ask is that you truly listen to the arguments being made today and then decide for yourself. So just be open-minded. I know that's a crazy concept. Be open-minded. So before we can discuss the history of systemic racism in our nation's history, we need to begin by explaining what I mean exactly by something called white privilege. So this argument for third reconstruction cannot happen without discussing the enduring racism and bias that allow white privilege to exist. So I'm going to stop right here and state that I'm not discounting anyone else's struggles at all. White privilege does not mean that your life has not been hard. It just means that your skin color is not the one thing that makes your life harder. Let me reiterate, white privilege is not the suggestion that white people have never struggled. So hear me loud and clear when I say that. 
as a white person saying that. But many white people do not enjoy the privileges that come with relative affluence, such as food security. Many do not experience the privileges that come with access to uh, nearby things such as hospitals. And white privilege is not the assumption that everything a white person has accomplished is unearned. Most white people who have reached a high level of success worked extremely hard to get there, so I'm not discounting that. Instead, white privilege should be viewed as a built-in advantage separate from one's level of income or effort. So author Francis E. Kendall gives a great encompassing definition of what white privilege is. So she defines it as having greater access to power and resources than people of color do in the same exact situations. So let's give a few examples. White people are more likely to see positive portrayals of people who look like them on the news, on TV shows, and in movies. They're more likely to be treated as individuals rather than as representatives of, or exceptions to, a stereotyped racial identity. In other words, they're often more humanized and granted the benefit of the doubt. They are more likely to receive compassion to be granted individual potential and to survive mistakes. This is negative effects for people of color who without this privilege face the consequences of racial profiling, stereotypes, and lack of compassion for their struggles. In these scenarios, white privilege includes the facts that one being white people are less likely to be followed, interrogated, or searched by law enforcement because they look suspicious. So the second thing being white people's skin tone will not be a reason people hesitate to trust their credit or financial responsibility. Third, if white people are accused of the crime, of a crime, they are less likely to be presumed guilty, less likely to be sentenced to death, and more likely to be portrayed in a fair, nuanced manner by media outlets. So this privilege is invisible to many white people because it seems reasonable that a person should be extended compassion as they move throughout the world. It seems logical that a person should have the chance to prove themselves individually before they are judged. It's supposedly an American ideal, but it's a privilege often not granted to people of color and most of the time with dire consequences. For example, programs like New York's previously um, held stop and frisk policy, they targeted a disproportionate number of black and Latino people. People of color are more likely to be arrested for drug offenses despite using a similar rate to white people. Some people do not survive these stereotypes. In, 29, in 2017, people of color who were unarmed and did not attack anyone were more likely statistically to be killed by the police. So you might be listening to this and thinking, okay, I see what you're saying, but what does this have to do with the need for a third reconstruction or even democratic socialism? I'm glad you asked. See, this the system of white privilege dates back far before the end of the Civil War, all the way to the time when the first slaves were brought here in 1619, and in my opinion, when this nation first started, 1619. For the purpose of this episode, though, we're going to begin with the end of the Civil War, the first actual Reconstruction. So once the Confederacy surrendered to Ulysses Grant at Appomattox Courthouse, our deeply divided nation was left with this enormous task of how to reconstruct a union that was torn apart. So more importantly though, was how to incorporate millions of previously enslaved African-Americans into society, but on an equal footing. 
So we were at a, almost like a watershed moment in our nation that could have radically altered the, the trajectory of our country. And it could have been a stepping stone for starting to right the wrongs of slavery. While many positive changes came from that period, it ultimately came up very short. So the resulting 160 something years saw the white elites work towards maintaining the white supremacy they held uh, with slavery, but now in a new form. So what does this have to do with democratic socialism? So one of the main beliefs of American democratic socialism is how to remedy the rampant economic and racial inequalities that continue to plague this nation. So this third reconstruction is just the first step towards righting one of the stains of our nation's past. So as I previously mentioned, America's original sin stems from this inherent racism that is sown into every aspect of history, politics, economy, and culture. While the structure of racial American capitalism has changed since our nation's founding, two things have remained the same. The thirst for profit and the exploitation of African Americans have persisted throughout. From abolitionists to anti-lynching activists to civil rights crusaders, and finally, most recently, the Black Lives Matter protesters, our history is full of leaders who challenged the status quo. They fought to challenge the, the class and race obstacles to equality and full citizenship. While we have made tremendous strides as a country and a, overall in our entire nation, the legacy of racial bigotry and discrimination remain a central part of America's unfinished business. To create a just, a just society, we have to progress past colorblind politics and address head-on the unconscious biases that shape our institutions and perpetuate our racial injustice. Both economic inequality and racial injustices are driving the public debate today. We see a growing consensus of a broken economic system. We can all agree that our economic system is broken. That means the middle and working class families are working harder, but enjoying less economic security. At the same time, the super wealthy have amassed an ever-growing share of power and capital. Along with this economic injustice, we also have the growing awareness of this 350-year-old racial divide. Both of these inequalities have driven our political discussions. But for years, we have thought of these problems to be two separate things. Leaders on the left and the right have pitted solutions to these injustices against one another. But finally, policymakers are starting to recognize that these injustices are intertwined and you can't just solve them individually. Our system of racial capitalism is built on the bedrock of racial rules. People of color have shouldered the greatest burden of this broken economy. These racial rules need to be acknowledged and rewritten in order to achieve economic security and racial justice. Today's push for progress is a stark contrast to the Trump administration's brand of racialized and white identity politics. Trump's nativist calls to return of the days of exclusion and isolation continue that, that centuries-long legacy that started once this, before this nation even began. For centuries, U.S. politicians have used racism as a tool to divide voters along racial lines and based on class. These policies have devastated not only communities of color, but also hurt white communities as well. And that's what we don't realize. It's not just um, people of color, those communities, it's communities that the white communities are being affected just as much. But the Trump presidency has brought, has not brought racism back to America. 
Instead, it has brought racism out of the shadows of race-neutral politics and now placed it in plain sight. Before outlining a policy agenda to address the forms of racism, we must distinguish between the common sense understanding of individual racism and structural racism. So over the last 50 years, the economic frameworks uh, have overall failed our society. It is focused on developing human capital that teaches us that if you fail to succeed, then it's your own individual failure. The solution to that failure is more education, more training, more jobs, and more ambition. That's what we're told. And when you fail, or when that fails, you deserve to be punished by the state. We push for investments into higher education, but have failed to develop mechanisms that support students and families who cannot afford the cost of tuition right out of their pocket. The result is millions of families being pushed further and further into debt in hopes of to achieve their only ticket to economic success, which is education, me included. So these formalized rules of success then intersect with these informal rules of racially influenced norms and behaviors. These racial rules fuel and perpetuate racism in many different forms. So to gain a deeper understanding of these racialized rules, we must start to acknowledge our nation's long history of devaluing blackness and fostering black inequality in virtually every segment of American life. So we begin this deeper understanding by looking at the first reconstruction following the Civil War. So the first reconstruction is generally regarded to have started with Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and ended with the, federal, uh, the end of federal authority in the South in 1877. So this was an era of far-reaching ambition with its attempts to reverse the social and economic effects of enslavement on newly freed African Americans. This era was marked by newly freed slaves seeing expanded social and political power and open educational opportunities that were previously prohibited. The major legal achievements of the Reconstruction era, the first one, is the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, and the 15th Amendment. So these guaranteed, uh, or these amendments abolished slavery, except for in the case of criminal punishment, which is a whole other episode to itself. So it guaranteed the right to equal protection under the law and prohibited racially discriminatory voting laws. So due in part to all of these amendments and laws, they all went towards expanding the federal power while working to curb states' rights. So this was important right there, curbing states' rights, because we always hear that now, because states' rights is just the guise that Southerners use to reassert white supremacy. So Reconstruction policies led to equally distributed uh, school funding and the highest level of Black representation in Congress in all United States history. But unfortunately, just like every, every, every other instance of great progress in our country, it was short-lived. The insane notion of black people being on the equal footing as white people was met with extreme violence. You know, it's a crazy concept of equality. But many Southern whites attempted to preserve their economic and uh, social domination through many forms of racial terror. So this included convict leasing, lynchings, and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, which I previously covered in episode two, The History of the Klan. Make sure to check that out. In 1890, though, both Democrats and Republicans have given up any hope of the promise of racial equality. So this selling out that the Republican Party did then allowed Southern states and a few Northern states actually to enact Jim Crow laws 
that relegated African Americans to separate but extremely equal, unequal schools, jobs, and neighborhoods. So, you know, they all said separate but equal, but it couldn't have been further from that. So Jim Crow laws allowed states to find loopholes in the 15th Amendment to wipe out voting rights of African Americans by instituting poll taxes, literacy tests, and other restrictive measures. In 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that state segregation laws were constitutional under the separate but equal doctrine, which we see is completely false. But this legalized caste system emerged that made many other kind of race mixing, whether in schools, workplaces, or anywhere else, illegal. So this system of exploitation allowed white elites to divide white and black workers and farmers from joining together to fight for better rights as a collective whole. So in uh, 1935, W.E.B. Du Bois po uh, published Black Reconstruction in America. And in that book, he addressed the question of why poor and working class whites failed to join black citizens to challenge the elite white system. So he argues that it resulted from a psychic benefit of racial status. So the white laborers, while they were still receiving a low wage, were compensated in part by a psychological wage is what it was called. So this psychological wage for white workers would shape American politics throughout the centuries leading up to today. So essentially, Dubois argued that while uh, working class whites were still paid a low wage, they could still be happy knowing that they were above African Americans on the social status. But at the same time, the Supreme Court opened the floodgates of exclusionary policies that allowed Southern states to systematically overturn many of the gains during Reconstruction and ultimately set the stage for the second Reconstruction less than 100 years later. So we move into the second major Reconstruction in our nation's history. So this began during World War II and ended in the 1970s. So with the war of the world descending into war in 1941, civil rights organizers scored their biggest victory since the first reconstruction. And so that was when FDR issued an executive order banning racial discrimination in defense plans. So FDR only decided to take this action after the famous civil rights and socialist organizer, A. Philip Randolph, he threatened to organize a massive protest march on Washington. So black Americans hoped that their contributions towards defeating Nazi Germany would mean better treatment as first class citizens back at home. But unfortunately, Jim Crow still prevailed in the South and most black citizens were confined to the lowest wages and uh, living conditions once they returned from war. So by the 1950s, the US entered the most recent era of inclusion, the civil rights era. So this era was able to make such an impact because of the legal strategies that the NAACP adopted. So they saw that political reforms were stalling. So they fought to win reforms in the legal area. So this was led by the 1954 Supreme Court ruling of Brown v. Board of Education. And that made segregation in schools illegal. One subsequent uh, case that is especially important to me was 1967's Loving v. Virginia. So in this Supreme Court case, it was ruled that interracial marriages were legal and, you know, that the crazy concept that skin color does, does not define love. Crazy, I know. But anyway, 
these series of legal victories were only one half of the overall strategy of the civil rights era. The other half came from a dramatic rise in grassroots organizing by thousands of ordinary people who took extraordinary collective action. So beginning in 1955 with the Montgomery boycott to the Freedom Riders and all the various organizations in between, they all faced physical and economic threats by standing together in the face of racial oppression. Overall, these legal changes helped usher in three major lasting consequences. The first was to a decreased social acceptability of explicit discrimination and racial tolerance. The second was the ending of formal legal segregation in public accommodations. And the third was the move from protest to politics. So I'm gonna give an example of that. Uh, nearly 59% of African-Americans voted in 1954. And once you moved out of the South, that number jumped to 72%. Although black Americans remained underrepresented as governors and members of Congress, the number of black Americans that held local office rose dramatically. So in 1950, only two African-Americans served in the House of Representatives. By 2019, there were 55 black members, um, which is about the same percentage of African-Americans nationwide. And finally, by 2008, we elected Barack Obama as our first African-American president. While those are tremendous gains, I'm not taking away from that at all, there's still, it shows that there's a long way to go to have more equal representation. So all these victories form the backbone of civil rights era accomplishments, and they help to shape the legal norms regarding today in our politics. Of course, these gains are far from complete, just like I mentioned earlier. Each time a major gain was made, the gains of the civil right or the gains or a politics of resentment and retrenchment was made. And these politics of retrenchment and resentment that I'm talking about, they were able to tap into racial and economic anxieties uh, of the lower class people. So the gains of the civil rights movement saw a resurgence of racial violence and lynchings by the KKK. Civil rights gains were also met with Nixon's war on the drugs and a return to law and order in the late 1960s. The presidency of Barack Obama was met with the racialized and nativist movement of the alt-right and now President Trump's um, policies. These recycled, these over and over again, recycled exclusionary policies are meant to preserve white power and white privilege at the expense of people of color. But we must not accept inequality as inevitability. Because of the labor and sacrifice of those uh, before, before us, we are once again at a time period where we can radically rewrite the rules of racialized and gendered capitalism with what I mentioned at the very beginning, a third reconstruction. So now we've, we've built a foundation and now we're leading up to the main thing, this third reconstruction. We need a third reconstruction to finally ensure that African-Americans and other people of color, color will be able to enjoy and depend on the same rights and economic opportunities as any other American. It's our moral duty to change the system. So we must remove the barriers that people of color face. So a few examples that just off the top of my head would be high interest rates on business loans and the high incarceration rates. Those are two just to name uh, a few. So this would unleash economic potential that would be not only important for people of color and their families, but for all Americans in the broader economy as a whole. A truly effective agenda 
that takes on racial inequality and tackles the structures that shape unequal outcomes must be broad and shaped by a clear set of four guiding principles that we're about to talk about. So the first one is that we have to reckon with our shared past. And this is something that I talk to my students about all the time. I'm like, we cannot progress as a nation unless we have those initially uncomfortable but necessary conversations about where we were and where we are going. We can't really know where we're going unless we learn from the past. So our nation has not fully reckoned with its racial history, like I just mentioned. We have to acknowledge the truth of our often horrific and undemocratic history of racial separation, along with the celebrating of the times that we have made progress. Any great policy must start with an acknowledgement of the reasons for the unequal starting place of why we're even pushing for a new policy to begin with. So the second thing is that we must tackle race and other identity inequities affirmatively. So race-neutral policies are often not race-neutral in intent and race um, have race-neutral uh, race outcomes. So just to, I know that's very confusing, so let's just have a, a good example. From 1990s welfare reform to mandatory minimum sentencing, race-neutral or colorblind policies have led to racially unequal outcomes. So we must call out the race, class, and gender injustices that have helped shape these policies and illustrate the extraordinary harm they have done to black families. And at the same time, redesign new rules that will prevent them from being replicated in the future. So one path forward that I'm gonna mention is through targeted universalism, which is a really cool concept when you think about it. This is where a certain policy benefits all, but it's addressed or crafted to address the needs of the least privileged. So an example of this would be a wealth building policy that we're gonna talk more in depth about later called baby bonds, guaranteed income and policies that curb environmental destruction. The third thing is that we must move towards an economy whose success is measured in security and stability for all people instead of just focusing on growth and investment. So focus on the greater good for everybody instead of, okay, how much did our economy or our portfolio or our uh, dividends grow? So the shift in economic focus that only deals with the highest profits has led to divestment in public provisioning and safety net policies. Instead of focusing on ensuring the well-being of all of our citizens, we've only focused on allowing corporations uh, the power to extract as much power and wealth as possible from its uh, workers. This shift will increase economic security and the quality of life for all Americans. So like I mentioned earlier, it benefits all, but it's geared towards helping those of less privilege. So um, all this shift, like I mentioned, it helps the quality of life for all Americans. And, you know, not everybody has benefited from trickle-down economics. So the fourth thing that I'm gonna mention is that we must reclaim political power. So it's critical that people in power represent the full diversity of the United States. Black disenfranchisement and political exclusion throughout the majority of US history has resulted in a power balance in who gets to actually write the rules. So we must rewrite the electoral rules to ensure that inclusion of marginalized communities who've often been at the uh, losing end of economic and racialized rules are written, 
are not written by a small elite few. So we must be able to have rules that represent all of us, not just a select few. So these four policy principles that I mentioned, they're, um, they're both ambitious and structural in a very sound way. So rewriting racially exclusionary rules will, will also require a bold progressive agenda that comprehensively addresses each of the following domains that I'm about to mention. So altering these domains can significantly address these racial disparities in our economy and our society. So much like uh, the first one is dealing with our democracy as a whole. So much like this massive disenfranchisement of uh, African-Americans following the reconstruction, the voting rights of black Americans and other communities of color continue to be targeted uh, year after year. The current rules of our democracy result in the lowest rates of participation voting wise among wealthy democracies. So rewriting the rules of our democracy is a critical first step to create a more just economy. We've expanded the enfranchisement of voters by amending the constitution half a dozen times throughout our history. It's time to do that again. So new rules must aim to guarantee the right to vote for all, implement a fully national system of voter registration, prohibit voting restrictions in all forms, and it must move towards a system of proportional representation. So when I say proportional representation, let's just give an example. Let's say that out of 100% of votes, I get 30%, okay? So then I would get 30% of the House of the seats in the House of Representatives. So this forces different political parties and factions to form together to build a coalition and in order to actually make things get passed. So they have to work together. And that's the easiest way um, to ensure this is to also help get money out of politics. The next domain I'm gonna talk about is criminal justice. So this radical scope and impact of the US penal system is not an accident of history, but it's rather a direct result of increasingly high incarceration policies that's been implemented over the last 40 years. The rules and policies regarding criminal justice and mass incarceration have deep roots in slavery and the Jim Crow era. So these laws have resulted in a permanent social and economic exclusion of black Americans, their families, and their communities. So a progressive economic agenda must acknowledge the link between our criminal justice system and economic inequality. And so to do so, though, would involve reducing investments in policing that have often uh, that actually resulted in the war on drugs and eliminating cash bail and uh, different uh, economic policies that criminalize racialized poverty. So it must also confront the injustices of for-profit prisons. They must also uh, propose a way to decriminalize drugs and provide treatment for individuals who are suffering from a substance abuse. So instead of just throwing people in prison, why not solve, try and work towards solving the issue of substance abuse? So the funds that would be spent on the war on drugs could then be diverted towards rebuilding these communities that uh, in the certain ways that I've just mentioned that have always been ravaged by these policies. The third domain is, is jobs. In recent decades, major shifts in the structure of the economy have taken a toll on the US worker, but they've had a unique impact on the black worker. The US economy today is plagued by persistent racial and wage gaps, continued discrimination in hiring, low and stagnant wages, 
in jobs that offer fewer and fewer, and fewer benefits. So progressive efforts to rewrite the rules of labor must combat the legacy of black Americans exclusion from the labor market with bold investments in jobs. So this should keep a deep public jobs program in fields such as infrastructure that um, involves the same kind of new deal uh, jobs programs that FDR offered during the great depression. The next domain that I'm going to talk about is wealth. So a progressive agenda must not only tackle wages and work, but also wealth. Wealth itself may be one of the main mechanisms for perpetuating racial economic inequality because it works to ensure that your parents' socioeconomic status will be yours and that your kids will not be able to rise out of it either. So it's like a perpetuating uh, cycle of not being able to pass along generational wealth. So to be able to invest in homes, um, education, new businesses, and future generations, you must have wealth because wealth matters. To effectively address racial wealth inequalities will require expanded asset building opportunities for those who've historically been locked out. So an example of this asset building opportunity is something I mentioned earlier, talking about baby bonds. So a baby bond provides every American at birth with a wealth grant that will be assessed to them at age 18. So you're given this bond and at the age of 18, you can access it. It's almost like a trust fund. So once a child turns 18, they can cash out that bond to either pay for their college, put a down payment on a house, or use it in any other way that helps stimulate the economy. So I hear people already freaking out. How are you going to pay for it? Well, a small one cent tax on those who are worth over $100 million would more than pay for it. So those who are worth over $100 million, A, could actually pay some taxes, and B, it could go for the benefit of everyone. That would also help them more in the long run by stimulating the economy. The next thing that we're gonna talk about is the corporate and market power. So creating a just and inclusive economy depends on drastically reforming the current system that allows corporations to just extract power from the people. So over the last 40 years, policymakers have slashed regulations, reformed the tax code, and allowed more corporations to consolidate and reduce competition. So this has allowed corporations to control workers' wages, control the prices of goods, and it's also led to an overall loss of manufacturing jobs. So by simply passing more effective corporate taxation, we can make our economy, society, and democracy more equitable and inclusive for everyone. The, ne uh, the next thing we're gonna talk about is worker power. So all democracies have had a strong labor movement. To simply put, we cannot have a strong democracy without a strong labor movement. Without a strong labor movement, we cannot have a strong middle class. Approximately one in 10 workers are unionized today, and that's compared to one in three workers only 50 years ago. So the decline in unions have led to an increasing rates of economic inequality. The decline in unions and workers' rights have not only affected former union members, but has also negatively affected all workers overall. So we've covered worker power. Now we're going to talk about public investments. So over the last 40 years, our policies have led to the weakening of public programs that have long been the bedrock of economic security for millions of low-income families. Just like the FDR New Deal era programs that we mentioned multiple times, we must reimagine the goal, the role of government and remind one another that one bold government solutions that, 
uh, big government bold solutions are American ideals that we all can embrace. We must consider what is required for all families, not only to achieve this basic uh, floor of well-being, but be able to flourish and live in dignity. This will require proposals for broad and significant public investments in housing, infrastructure, healthcare, education, and social insurance programs that benefit all workers. These proposals must account for the ways that communities of color have historically been prevented from benefiting from such programs. And so our last domain, our eighth domain that we're gonna talk about, constitutional legal change. So we must recognize that as long as our reading of the constitution is biased against race conscious policies, we will be prevented from making structural change that affirmatively tackles the exclusions that we have been, that have been a part of our country from its founding. So until we recognize the racial disparities that um, occur because of the writing of the constitution, until we work to write that, nothing's gonna change. So as you can see, enduring racial inequalities and the durability of racism is a driver and feature of our economic system. It demands progressives recommit to reimagining and rebuilding our policies for the true inclusion and racial justice in this country. So rewriting our political economic rules in a colorblind way is simply not enough. This era demands an economic narrative and an agenda that addresses the obstacles and opportunities facing not only black Americans, but all people of color, women, immigrants, the LGBTQ community and beyond. It's not just one group, it's all of us working collectively as a group. This agenda must acknowledge the ways in which politicians have strategically used racism to ratchet up the fear and resentment in white communities. For too long, progressives have talked about the symptoms of inequality without naming the rules that drive it, and that being the people who wrote the rules by which they were all made. They have not connected the dots between the racial economic agenda that funnels wealth away from the people and into the pockets of the few. And also, so that's the first one, and the racial social agenda that advocates the continued oppression of people of color. So just to reiterate, they've not connected these dots of a racial economic agenda and the social agenda that advocates for the impression of people of color. Those two are intertwined. But these two agendas are just two sides of the same coin, like I just mentioned. The challenge for progressives will be to hold on to the truth that the racial rules of the last 140 years that have not worked for Americans, either black or white. So it's clear that these racial rules have not worked um, for Americans, neither black or white. We need to make that truth known. Racial and economic justice is not just a zero sum game. A third reconstruction that achieves equity um, for black Americans would benefit all Americans. But to do so, we must tackle the hidden rules of race and racism head on. So I really hope you enjoyed the second part on our series on American democratic socialism. So make sure first off to like and subscribe below uh, to my YouTube channel if you really liked this episode. Second off, in our next week, we will discuss a, um, the three-legged uh, stool of policies comprised of a federal jobs guarantee, baby bonds, and reparations that can help work towards mending our unequal economy. So once again, I mentioned it, I'm really thankful for your support. 
And if you really enjoyed this episode and want to let me know how I'm doing, feel free to like and subscribe to my channel below. Um, I always appreciate any comments or feedback that's given. I, uh, I truly, truly have enjoyed this so far. It's been an interesting ride so far, and I'm really looking forward to what areas we go to next. And I'm always looking forward to uh, looking for suggestions. So if you got some suggestion of another topic to cover once we finish this, feel free to shoot, shoot it to me. So until next week, I'm Caleb Mood, and I want to remind you that the most revolutionary act that one can engage in is to simply tell the truth. Thank you, and have a great week. The available AKG 36 speaker sound system in the Cadillac Escalade provides 360-degree sound, so you hear studio sound on the road. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade. Never stop arriving. The N-OLED display in the Cadillac Escalade has 38 total diagonal inches of color display. So why do we give it a curve too? I guess you could say we like to bend the rules. The 2021 Cadillac Escalade, never stop arriving.